Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the text, and then we'll jump in, um, starting at 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. This is what it says. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Before we pray, I just want to, I want to say this. Um, we, need to, we need to kind of start here. Um, I'm not going to tell you if you've been, especially if you've been here for, um, throughout First John. As a matter of fact, if you spend any time in, in church whatsoever, I'm not going to tell you anything new today. Nothing. I mean, more than likely, everything you're going to hear is going to be reviewed. I, I, as a matter of fact, as you're going through the book of First John and as we've been going, he has pretty much now stopped with what I would call any new teaching. Everything now is just kind of finishing up, reminding you of the things you've heard. Now, does that mean, well, that's, that's the case, then we just need to go ahead and shut down First John and go to the next book. No, <laughs> that's not right, because since God um, wrote the Bible for us, he, he, he intends for us to hear these things a couple more times. We've talked about the tests. We've talked about that, you know, he's talked about righteousness and love and truth and how he so, said those. And about halfway, he to, reminded us that we're God's children. And now he's reminding us of those tests again, righteousness, love and truth. And he's visiting love a third time here in chapter four. So the Holy Spirit, God himself wants us to hear the fact that we need to be loving people. It, he, he desperately wants you to hear that you need to be loving people. But here's the thing. Um, everything I'm going to tell you here is stuff that you probably know. Um, so I'm confident of this. Unless you and unless I beg the Spirit of Christ to come and do a work on us this morning, a new, fresh work on us in our hearts this morning, then we're really kind of gathering together in vain to hear from the Scriptures. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, interacting with a lot of you and hearing how Christ is working in your life and, and bring you along, bringing you along spiritually, some of you, more than half of you, could probably write or blog or even come up here and talk about these things from the Scriptures probably better than I could. So it's not from lack of information. It's not from lack... It's, it's not like you. this is going to hit you with brand, brand new... I've never heard this stuff, bud. Um, more than likely, all of you have heard it, and half of you could communicate it better than I could. Maybe all of you. So the point I'm trying to make is this. Unless we say, God, this is information I know, 
But what I need this morning is not a greater understanding of knowledge, because I probably know these things, but that you would take my heart from these things I've already known my entire life and start connecting it to my heart in such a way that it changes the way I live, that it really affects my living of this. Then we're gathering together in vanity. And so today, as we hear from the Scriptures and telling us about love, um, what I want us to do is to, to ask Christ to submit our hearts to the things that we already know and that we would start walking in these things, that we would truly want to start living these things out in our life. So we're going to go into a time of prayer, um, and it's a little bit different more, maybe than usual. Um, in the beginning, I, I just want you to pray in your spirit to yourself um, some things that I want to I want to lead you through, and then I'll close this in our time of prayer. So let's pray. Let's close our eyes and pray. And right now, what I want you to do is just ask God to come now and speak to you and teach you um, and work on your heart this morning. So in these next few moments, just ask God to work on your heart this morning as you hear from His Scriptures to to lead you into what it means to be a kind and loving person. Someone that's been affected by the gospel. Truly understanding the gospel. And, and as you're finishing praying for yourself, maybe you could pray for the person on your right or left. That God would do the same thing that you've asked Him to do in your heart and their heart this morning. God, I... I just confess to you my utter need for you this morning to do a work in my heart that's supernatural. And really, I think that's the prayer of us all. For some of us, we've been in church so long, these things that we're going to talk about today are not, are not new things at all. As a matter of fact, they're things that we've heard and probably told people our entire life about what it means to be a loving person, about what it means to, to love others and, and be affected by the gospel that we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't think that it's a lack of information here, God. Not in my heart, and maybe not for most of us. I think what we need is a fresh wave of your Spirit to come and just remind us of the goodness of the gospel to be in Christ, what it means that we don't have a judgment coming, but just a lavishing of love as we come into Christ one day when we are received in heaven and said, well done, good and faithful servant. And that right now we should live according to that day. So I pray for myself, God, and I pray for my friends here. I pray that as we hear and see these scriptures, though these things are things that we've heard before, that you would open our eyes to these things that we've heard and make them new. And as we see them and, and they're becoming new to us, that it isn't just something that we say, okay, that's information. I got it filed away in my brain and now I'm good. Thanks for the more information download. But it's, it's going to affect the way we love other people. It's going to affect the way we live. It's going to affect our outflowing of worship as we talk to one another, as we try to lead each other in, into Christ, as we evangelize our friends and neighbors. Help us submit our hearts to truly start seeing God's love in its fullness and start loving other people. 
I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as I've said many times, First John 5.13 kind of sums up one of the reasons why he's written. I'm writing these things to you, to you for those that believe in the name of the Son of the God that you may know you have eternal life. So he's wanting us to know. He's wanting us to have confidence and assurance that we're in Christ. If you're a Christian, you kind of struggle with assurance. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I'm not sure. Read the book of First John. He's written it to you so that you can know. And as I've said before, he's kind of given us some tests. The way that you can know is, is look at these things. Do I have a life of righteousness or unrighteousness? Do I have a life of love for my brother or, or a, you know, just a life that has, seems to have no care for people? Do I have a life that understands true doctrinal things about Jesus and I need to know what these things are? Or do I really not even care about Jesus? Do I not even care about the Bible? Do I not care about what it says? Um, and he's done that twice for us now. And he's revisited one a third time, love. Some people say that as you read through 1 John chapter 4 and kind of pair it up with 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter, you put those two things and then you can just have those two things, then God's really telling you what it means to be a loving person and what love is. is look at 1 Corinthians 13, look at 1 John 4, and God's communicated to you what it means to be a loving person. And as we're looking at this today, um, it's written from the context or from the, from the idea of the writer John that he wants you to know that you're in Christ. He wants you to know that you're a believer by having love in your life for your fellow man. So that's where we are. And as we're looking at um, verses 13 through 21, there's really three um, exhortations that I want you to see regarding love. There's three things that um, this is really Baptist today. There's three points. Um, there's, there's three things that I, he's exhorting us to do. Um, exhorting is just, I'm, I'm strongly advising you to have these things present in your life and to be doing these things in your life. He's, he's exhorting us in three different ways. Um, the first one comes from verses 13 through the first part of 16. 13 through the first part of 16. Um, and that's this, the exhortation to abide in God. He's exhorting you to abide in God. He wants you to live and be in God. Look at, look at the scriptures here in 13. Um, by this we know that we, here it is, abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And so you can know that you're abiding in Him and God's abiding in you, exhorting you. Know that you're abiding in Him. And he says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, here it is, God abides in him. He's wanting you to see that God abides in you through confession of, of the fact that Jesus is Son. And he and God, and God, and you are also abiding in God. We have come to know and to believe the God that, the God that, I'm sorry, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And there it is. We're going to stop there. So that's the first thing that we're going to see here is that God is exhorting you to abide in him. Now, as we start hearing this exhortation, this can be like, all right, um, that seems that seems pretty tough. Like I know when I wake up in the morning, God's telling me to abide in him. But when I wake up in the morning, I don't feel like abiding in him. I feel like doing a whole lot of other things, sleeping in or doing what I want or, or whatever. But I don't feel like abiding in him throughout the day as opportunities to tell people about Christ come up. A lot of time, if we're abiding in him, we're going to obey those urges. Those we're going to tell people about Jesus. But sometimes we don't feel that. And we just kind of we get scared or we get nervous or we don't even pay attention to the opportunity. And as we keep going, maybe we have conversations with our spouse or with our friends that, we, that aren't necessarily Christ exalting. And we get to the end of the day and we had this horrible day and we haven't lived for Jesus and we're 
we're like, oh, I'm not even abiding him. I'm going to I'm going to read my Bible. And we start reading our Bible. And as we're you know, we get through the first couple of verses, we fall asleep or we try to pray. And we're like, I'm going to I'm going to pray in my bed with my eyes closed, laying down on my pillow with the lights off. And then we, you know, we haven't really abided in him at all that day. We're thinking, oh, this is so hard. He tells me I have to abide in him. And I find it difficult. I find it really difficult to abide in him. Well, there's some good news you need to hear from these verses. There's some good news. All right. First one comes from verse 13. Look what it says. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So here's one good thing. This is good news. If you're commanded or exhorted to abide in him, well, here's the good news. His Holy Spirit is in you. His spirit is in you. You have God in you. This verse right here, 13, is just it's a real restatement. If you look at the... The second half of verse 24, 324, look at verse 324. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And look at this, by we know that we abide in him and he is and he in us because he has given us his spirit. This is just a a uh, a re kind of saying of verse 324. So the fact that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us um, is good news to help us abide. Now, listen to this quote. This is from a guy named uh James Boyce, he's talking about the Holy Spirit residing in us and and our assurance in our salvation. And this is what he says. We must not think, as some commentators have, that these are conditions by which we're enabled to dwell in God or remain in Him. To believe in Christ and to love the brethren are not the conditions by which we may dwell in God. To... To believe that G- to believe in Christ and then to start loving your people are not the things that help you um, start... Uh, abiding in him he says these things are not the conditions by which we may dwell in god rather are the evidences of the fact that god has already taken possession of our lives to make this possible so you're not believing in god and loving your and loving your fellow man just in order to be able to start kind of walking with god you're not doing these things in, in order to have the holy spirit living inside of you oh i got to have the holy spirit inside of me and I, I know what i need to do i need to constantly making sure i'm believing in god and loving my brother as soon as i stop doing those things the holy spirit's just going to kind of jump out of me that's not what we're saying he's saying this um that the fact that the holy spirit has come inside of you now god himself is dwelling you and he's the one that's guiding you. That is evidence of the fact that he lives inside of you whenever you continue believing in God and whenever you love your fellow man. So the Holy Spirit inside of you is evidence. These things are evidence that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Now, look at this. Um, verse 14. He says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This is just a, a very succinct kind of restatement of, of the gospel, the good news. The word gospel just simply means good news. And you, you'll kind of hear it a lot as we keep saying the gospel, the gospel. Week in, week out, we kind of a one-man band we, or one, one tune. We just want to say the one thing over and over because we believe the gospel is what is going to remind you to hope in Jesus and live a life that worships God. Here it is. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. You and I, outside of Jesus, walk in complete rebellion of Him, willingly choosing every day to sin. And because of that, we're on a path towards 
hell. We're on a, on a willing choice. We have said, all right, you know what I want? It's hell. Because I want to sin and I want to continually do that. So we've made not just a passive, but an active decision to walk away from God and decide to go towards hell. And God, in His gracious mercy, sees us walking down that path and says, I don't want that path for you. But because you've sinned against me, there has to be punishment. I have to, I have to punish you for that. But what I'm going to do is not punish you. I'm going to put my son, he's going to live a perfect life in this world, and he's going to go to the cross. And all the punishment I sh- that I would put on you, I'm going to put on him. Perfect punishment is cast on him. And if we believe in him, that's why he says he's the savior of the world. If we believe in Christ and his work on the cross for us, if we say, I, that, is, that is my work, all of the righteousness that Christ has, this perfect life, is then put on us. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. All of God's righteousness in, in Christ is given to us. All of our punishment that we deserve is put on Christ. And then when God sees us, he sees us as perfectly righteous. That's why he calls Jesus the savior of the world. Now, if you don't know Jesus, you need to hear that. That sounds like, it should sound like incredible news. As you walk through your life, you'll continually feel this constant awareness of the sin in your life continually. And and the Holy Spirit, if he's gracious to you, will remind you, you need a savior. You need to be saved. And one day, Somebody's going to tell this simple message to you, just like I did, and they might, they might do this morning. Somebody's going to tell it to you in a way that you're going to, your eyes are going to open up and you're going to see, oh, that message, that Jesus, that cross, that is beautiful. I don't have to go to hell. I can be forgiven of everything I've done and go to heaven and be with the Savior that died for me. And you're going to believe in Him. Could be this morning. I would, I would encourage you to put your faith in Jesus this morning and start living a life of worship. Start living a life of devotion, showing me and God and everyone in here that Jesus is your highest treasure. You're going, it's not like you have to say, okay, in order for me to have a right standing with Jesus now, I've got to put my faith in Jesus and I have to start performing. I've got to start doing the right things. I've got to stop doing those sins and start... All those things happen naturally because... He has given us His Spirit. If God has put Himself inside of you in the form of the Holy Spirit, then you start walking and start living according to the things that He wants you to do. You don't have to perform anymore because all of the punishment was put on Jesus and all the righteousness in Christ has been put on you. And now, after you have put your faith in Him, you walk perfectly righteous in front of God for the rest of your life. For those who are in Christ do not have to do good works in order to have a right standing with God. You have a right standing with God forever because of Jesus. Christianity is not like any other religion in the world. It's not like any other religion in the world. Every religion is based on your good works to have a right standing with God. Besides Christianity, it's based on a finished work of Jesus. And if you put your faith in Him, that's always standing. You always have a right standing with God. Now we're going to see some of that today as we start going through this. So that's the, that's the first good news. The first good news is that His Spirit is in us. Now, let's keep going into 15. And it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. God abides in Him. The first point here, this exhortation, is that you need to abide in God. You need to abide in God. 
Well, hear this. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, if you've put your faith in Christ, if you've confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, look what happens. God abides in him. Whoever does that, God abides in him. So if you've put your faith, God abides. If, if I'm telling you, abide in God, and this is telling us, God abides in you. And after that, and he in God. Verse 15 is very encouraging. That's good news. If I'm exhorting you to abide in God, verse 15 is telling you, if you're a Christian, God abides in you and you abide in him. That's good news. So don't think of this exhortation to abide in God as some kind of um, task that's so great I can't get it done. Oh, how am I going to do this? Praise be to God, he's made all the provisions you need to abide in him. Because he abides in you. He's already doing it. You just need to walk in it. As Philippians 3.16 says, only let us hold true to what we have already attained. You've already attained it. Let us hold true to it. So, um, let's look at 16. This first part of 16. I want you to see this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Now, God has, has a deep love for you. He's shown it to us in Christ on the cross. And so he's telling us two things here. We've come to know it. We have a real working knowledge of the love of God in our lives. And we've also come to believe it. We have a real working belief of the love of God for us. A real working belief. So what does it mean and what does it look like to believe the love of God for us? In your life, what does that mean? What does that look like? Now, I can't give you the answer here. I can, I can throw out some examples. I can throw out some applications. But what does it look like for you to think, okay, I have come to know and to believe the love that God has for me. I believe that God has a deep love for me. I've come to know it. What does that look like? Once you understand the cross and you believe that, what does that look like for you in your life? Well, we're going to start talking about it. But what would, what would be different? What would change? How would your lifestyle alter to know that God, the creator of everything, the one who has been here eternally past and will be eternally future, he's all different from us, has a deep love for you individually, not mankind. Yes, he is. I mean, that's one... In, but. You, what does that mean for you? All right, let's look at the second thing. Let's look at the second thing. The second exhortation. Verse, this is going to be from verses 16b through 18. And it says this. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So that little, that little um, section there is going to... The exhortation is, is this, and we can see it really in 16b, is the exhortation to live in the love of God. Look at 16b one more time. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. 
Notice he says, God is love. And so whoever abides in love, whoever lives in love, abides in God. And God abides in him. So here's the second exhortation, that we are to live in the love of God. We are to live in the love of God. Now, here's, here's the good news. Um, if we're to live in the love of God, here's good news. If I'm telling you, you have to do this. You have to live in the love of God. This is good news. First one, God is love. If I'm telling you, you have to live in the love of God, then all you need to do, one of the things you need to do, is continually find yourself getting closer to God. The more you get closer to God, the more you understand the God, the more you want to live and work for God, you're going to live in the love of God because God is love. So that's the first thing. Um, I want to I help you understand a little bit in verse 17 here. It says, By this... Is love perfected? So by this, the the by this is referring up to verse 16. By this abiding and knowing and living in the love of God, is love perfected? Now this this word perfected, um, some of your versions might say made complete. Um, Made complete is is probably a better understanding um, because what we're not talking about is flawless love. We're not saying that when it says by this, is love perfected with us. What I'm not saying is, you have to go now and love flawlessly, like in a moral sense. Like your love has to be absolutely perfect. That's not what I'm saying. What we're saying is because Christ has come to you, your love has to be made complete. All right, let me, let me explain that. This is what James Boyce says. This word perfected or made complete here does not mean totally without flaw in a moral or any other sense. Because here's the deal. No matter what, your love will not be perfect for the rest of your life. Morally, you will love imperfectly. Because we're sinners, right? We're all sinners. So no matter what, no matter how much we strive, the way we love, though it can be with increasing measure, Reaching that perfection as we're sanctified, it will never be absolutely perfect. And he's not telling us that it has to be morally flawless. This is what he's saying. This made complete does not mean without flaw in a moral sense or any other sense. It means whole. So your love is to be whole. Your love is to be mature. Your love is to be made complete. And it refers to that state of mind and activity in which the Christian is to find himself when the love of God within him expressing itself and the believer's own love has accomplished that which God fully intends to accomplish. Let me, let me unpack this for you. It's really simple. All right, it's really, really simple. Your love is not to be perfect. We want it to be, but we're sinners. We're going to keep doing it. So this, refer back to me, because as I've said, John here, the way he writes is just really circular. Um, whenever you see something in four, you could probably go back to three and see it again. If you're maybe in three, you can see it in two. Whenever you see it in two, you can see it in four. He's just this huge circular writer. It's not like Paul, where it's just like point one gets to B to C to D. And like He just write, writes in circles. So here's what I mean when I say his love needs to be perfect in you, or his love needs to be made complete in you. Look at 3.18. Look at 3.18. And this is in, in section two, whenever he's referring to the test of love. Look what he says. Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So when we say your love needs to be made complete, what we're saying is this. When Christ comes into your heart, 
then you start saying in your mind, I'm supposed to love. I'm, uh, you're reading in the Scriptures. I'm supposed to be a loving person. This is just the talk. Okay? In order for that kind of love to be made complete, it, you can just walk around and say, I need to be loving. Oh, I'm going to be loving. One day I'm going to find myself being loving. Blah, 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 blah. But it hasn't been made complete yet because all you have is just a mental understanding of the fact that you're supposed to be loving. So this love being perfected in you or this love being made whole or mature or being made complete is whenever you take it from your mind and your talk, And you start doing what 3.18 says. Little children, let us not just love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth, in action. So your love that's being perfected comes to its wholeness, comes to its completeness or perfection whenever you start living out love in deed, in action. Whenever you start letting your hands do the things that your heart's telling you you're supposed to do. Now, that's different than having flawless, perfected, like this, I have to, if I'm going to love someone, it has to be morally flawless. Let's, let's kind of get that moral sense out. It's talking about letting our actions match what we know we're supposed to do. That's what we're talking about in 17 here when he says, um, he says that our, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence so we may have confidence. This confidence is just the same idea as 5.13. Look at 5.13. I already um, said it once. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. He's, he's the same idea. We need to have confidence um, on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment. Now this is interesting here. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Um... It's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's in the text. So I want to explain what I mean by the day of judgment and how we can have confidence on the day of judgment and what that means. Um, Paul refers to this day as well. If you, if you look over in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, this is just kind of getting us started on what I mean day of judgment. I'm going to show you what I actually mean, but this is just an example of Paul referring to this day of judgment as well. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul wasn't in Corinth and he had heard, oh, these people in Corinth are having some, I mean, not just some, having a lot of moral problems. And one of the things, they had written a letter and said, hey, we've got a guy here. Um, well, what happened is his dad, uh, he got remarried to another lady um, that's not his, you know, not this son's mom. It's just his stepmom or mother-in-law, stepmom. And so um, now what happened is this son, um, he's decided to start sleeping with this lady, his dad's wife. And so he, he's not only just doing that, he's kind of like flaunting it around. He's like, no big deal. And this guy is claiming to be a Christian. He's claiming to be in the church. And so Paul um, very angrily writes to, about this guy to Corinth. He's like, I, I'm not really a, a fan of this guy. Look what he says. It's actually, in 5.1, 5, 5, it's actually reported that there is sexual, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Even, even the pagans know you're not supposed to sleep with your dad's wife. And in the church, this is happening. So Paul's a little angry. Skip down to me, uh, with me to verse 12. And he, basically he keeps saying that this guy is awful. You need to get this guy out of the church. I can't even believe he's in there. Get him out of here. Get him out of the church is basically what he says. Um, and then it says, for what, I'm in verse 12. I'm in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church. I'm sorry. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Hooked on phonics clearly did not work for me this morning. Um, 
for what have I to do with judging outsiders? So Paul's saying, um, this guy's associating himself with the church. So I, Paul, and us Christians, when Christians do something, we have the right to judge them. We, we, we need to have some understanding that those who are in the faith that call themselves Christian, if they're in just rampant sin, we as the church, and likewise, if we're in rampant sin, they need to come to us, of course Christ-like, but we need to hold the church accountable for sin. The bride needs to look pure. Outsiders, those who aren't Christians, yeah, I mean, that's a different story. But those in the church, we need to. That's why he's kind of saying, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church. It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? I'm sorry, this is awful. 5.13, and then it says right here, this is my whole point. Here's my whole point, 5.13. God judges, and if you have a little footnote, it says, will judge. My little footnote says, will judge, and, and I think this is more right. God will judge. God will judge those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So what he's saying is, there are people, I know that took me forever, so just bear with me here, all right? I, I, you know, never mind. All right, so... um. I was going to tell you a story, but I shouldn't. So, um, Paul's saying these people that are outside the church, these people that are pagans, these people that are non-Christians, God's going to deal with them one day. He will judge. Look at verse 13 again. God judges or will judge those outside. So he's referring to this thing that one day there's going to be a judgment. Just like five, right here in verse 5, I'm sorry, in chapter 5, 17, when he says... We can have confidence for the day of judgment. So we know that there's a day of judgment coming. Those who are in Christ, 5.17 tells us in 1 John, we can have confidence. We can see over here in this, in this section in 1 Corinthians 5.13, those who are outside of Christ on that day of judgment, when God judges them, it doesn't seem to be there's going to be a favorable conclusion for them. It says, purge the evil person from among you. God judges those outside. So let me, let me show you in the scriptures what I'm talking about this day. Um, you can flip over to the last book in the Bible. It's Revelation. And this is verse, I'm sorry, chapter 20. This is chapter 20. This is verses 11 through 15. This is what's known as the great white throne judgment. As five, at 1 John 5 just called it, the day of judgment. There's a day coming in the future. We don't know when it is. I mean, it could be tomorrow. It could be 2,000 years from now. But there is a day coming where everybody that's ever lived, Christians and non-Christians, will come before the King Jesus in, the, in His throne to be judged. And this is what he's talking about when he says that on that day, if we're in Christ, when we're, I mean, this will be, I'm sure, pretty scary. We're all up there to be judged. We can have confidence. Look what he says here. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were... And this is the eventual... Um, Life, this is the eternal destiny of those outside of Jesus. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That, when I talked about the gospel, that is the eternal destiny of everybody outside of a relationship with Jesus. That should frighten you if you're not in Christ, but it's not meant to... Um, it's, you shouldn't just say, I want Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. You, wanna, you want Jesus because you're in love with Christ. 
but also that should awaken all of us who are Christians. I mean, listen, if you know someone that is not a Christian, then you should read this every day. The death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is their eventual destiny if you don't tell them about Jesus. So we need to wake up, maybe, some of us, if we have people around us that are not in Christ. They will, they will be consciously tormented eternally in the lake of fire with death and Hades and Satan and the Antichrist forever and ever. But look what it says in 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So what we can see is those who are in the book of life are not thrown into the lake of fire, but will spend eternally with Jesus. That's the great white throne judgment. That's the day of judgment as First John 5 is talking about. And here's the deal. We can have confidence if we're in Christ that day when we come before him because we know that our name is written in the book of life. So why is that a big deal? Why is knowing that we can have confidence on that day a big deal for us this day? Because, look at 17, because as he is... And that is just a loaded three little words there. As he is, talking about Jesus, as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. As Jesus is, perfect, righteous, because of the gospel, so also are we now. So as Jesus is, never going to be condemned again as he was when he was on the cross, so also are we now. Never going to face condemnation. Never going to face punishment. And he tells us that about in, eight, in verse 18. As Jesus is in the world, shining forth perfect love, so also are we now to be shining forth perfect love. As he is, so also are we. Everything that is in Christ about him, so also are we now in this world. That's what having confidence on the last day means. We're in Christ. Yeah, we can stand confident on the last day. No one will spend eternity with Jesus. But also, we can be confident here, now. Because as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. Now we know in 2.15 he tells us not to... He says no one should love the world. Look at 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there's a there's a... The fine line to walk here. Yeah, we're in the world, but we're not loving the world. But as Jesus is in the world, so also are we to be in the world. And in the fullest sense of that. So yeah, confidence one day means that it should change the way we live now. So since there's no pending judgment on us at the white, great white throne judgment, There's no pending judgment for you, for me. Our our name, if you're in Christ, will be written in the book of life. What John is saying is, you and I should be the best lovers in the world. And I don't mean that in some kind of sensual way, and I don't mean that even necessarily in the most um, brotherly love phileo way. Because we saw in 7 through 12 that every time he said the word love in 7 through 12, he was talking about agape, divine love. You and I should be the best agape or divine lovers in the world. You and I should be expressing God's love to other people 
in this world. Remember what he told us last week in the end of verse 12? No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us because Christians can't, uh, non-Christians can't see, no one has ever seen God right now. And since we've never seen him, then if God's living inside of us as we go through this world, they can see God by seeing our love. So, because there's no pending judgment, we should be the best lovers in the world. All right, now look what it, Look what it says here. Here's the second part of good news. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Here's the second part of good news. If I'm telling you, you need to live in the love of God, you need to, you need to live in that love, here's good news. Love expels fear. You don't need to fear God. If I'm telling you to live in God and love God and be and, and dwell in that love, if you're in Christ, you should not fear Him. Now, um, this fear is kind of the understanding. Like we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, so we we know that we're supposed to have some kind of fear. But don't think of afraid. Like I'm afraid and I'm I'm terrified of Him. It's Halloween and I'm scared. Like whenever I'm, it's not like scare wins fear. All right, it's um, the way we're supposed to fear God is reverence, but not cowering away the reason why is because we don't have punishment um here's what i mean like uh whenever i want my kids to obey me whenever i want them to obey me i can just raise my voice and say get in line i can yell at them right and they may obey for a time but that's not that's not what i'm that's not what i'm after i don't want them to just fear me and be scared of me and obey and some of you maybe have a wrong view of God because you had a dad like that. Maybe if you, some of you think um, God is, is mad at me all the time and I should fear him the way that I feared my dad whenever he would come home from work. I'd just run over into the other room because so I was always kind of scared of him. And some of you might have kind of a fearful way that you kind of view God like I'm scared of him. He's so powerful and big because your dad was like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a reverence. Like, you're going to reverence God and you're going to live in His love and you're going to obey Him because you can see His love. I can get my kids to obey me with, with yelling at them or I can say, I love you. I love you more than you can understand. Don't you want to live and walk in my love and do the things that I, I say because as I tell them, you, it's for your good, it's for your joy, it's for your happiness, it's for your betterment. Well, yeah, you want to obey that kind, of, that, that kind of father. So don't think of God as fearful as in I'm afraid of him. And that's what he's telling us in verse 18. There is no fear in love. We're not scared of, of Jesus. We're not scared of our father. Because perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And we've already said this. Jesus took our punishment on the cross. We have no punishment anymore. We will never receive punishment for our sin. We will never receive punishment for our sin. Never. That's really good news. And if we would receive punishment for our sin, we're saying Christ's work on the cross was incomplete. 
Now, God does discipline us. Hebrews 12, 7-17 tells us that. God does discipline us. But there's a difference between discipline and punishment. Alright, so here's the third exhortation. Verses 19-21. through 21. And you can kind of see the two-pronged love with which he's telling us here. here let me just tell it to you. The, the exhortation, the third exhortation is to fulfill the two greatest commandments. The two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. So the third exhortation in verses 19 through 21 is that you would start doing those two things. 19 right here says, we love because he first loved us. We love God because he first loved us. So that's the first thing. We're supposed to walk in loving God. And then the second one is to love our neighbor as ourselves. He says that in 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. That's just the same thing that we saw in 2.9 and 2.11. I don't have time to read them right now, but 2.9 and 2.11 says the exact same thing. That if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has never seen. How can you love God, whom you've never seen, if you can't love your brother, whom you've seen? And then verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we can see in 19 through 21, he's exhorting us to love God and to love each other. Here's an amazing thing in 19. We love because he first loved us. What you need to know is this. God has always taken the initiative. Always taken the initiative in our love with him. You don't take the initiative with God to love him. He takes the initiative to love you. Therefore, you can now love him. Even while we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. While you were an enemy of him, while you walked in complete rebellion of him, while you and I hated him, <laughs> hated him, he loved us. So, loving people and loving God can be pretty pretty difficult. It, it, it requires something. It really requires something. Trust and vulnerability. You're opening up your heart to maybe be hurt. Whenever I, uh, I used to travel for Charleston Southern, um, I used to have to go like all around the country, mostly the east. And um, there was one time where uh, I always planned my entire travel. I, I, I called the renter car. I called the, the plane place. I, called, I mean, I did everything. And one time the secretary said, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to plan your trip for you. I was like, oh, okay. Sounds good. You know, that sounds good. Um, I was a little nervous because I always did it myself because I was kind of a control freak. Still not that way anymore, though, by God's grace, right? Chrissy's laughing. So anyway, um, God's working on me. I'm being sanctified. Um, Christy's, this is Christy's challenge is to love me through my OCD. So anyway, that's just way off topic. All right, so the lady planned it for me, all right? 
I'm arriving in, she picked my flight, I leave at like 6 or 7 p.m. I'm arriving into the middle of nowhere, Connecticut, um, like somewhere around 10 or 11 on a Sunday night. Um, and so when she set up the renter car, she set up the renter car for 12 p.m. Well, that's kind of funny because at midnight it's 12 a.m. She got her 12 a.m. or 12 p.m. mixed up. And so I'm arriving there in the middle of nowhere with a 40-minute drive to my hotel on a Sunday night, really, really, really late. The airport's completely empty. And I'm thinking, this is weird. This just doesn't feel right. And I walk over to where the rental cars are supposed to be, and, you know, all of them are closed. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? I can't spend the night in the airport. I'm nervous. I mean, um, I'm normally not too scared, but in the middle of nowhere, I can get kind of scared. Like, I don't know anybody. It's dark, and there's spooky people in the airport at you know sunday night at midnight and so i'm just kind of like um walking around with my bag like uh i walk outside there's got to be a rental car here somewhere they're supposed to be here and so nothing's going on and in my mind at the time the rental car is supposed to be there i found out later that it was a time thing i didn't know i'm like where is my rental car and so i'm getting kind of nervous i'm getting kind of scared and then this man um, and lady, whom I'd never met, are sitting there in a car, and they come up to me and they say, are you waiting for somebody? And I'm just going to tell you, these guys looked a little scary, all right? I'm, I know I look like I can take my, you know, carry my weight in any kind of scrap or anything, but they looked a little scary. But here's the deal. I, I had nothing. Like, I was completely out of anything. I had no options. I was not going to sleep in the spooky airport, um, and I wanted to get to my hotel, and I knew how to get there. And so they say to me, I'm completely scared, I'm completely vulnerable, I'm completely like out of my mind nervous, and I had nowhere else to go, I had nowhere else to turn, I say, yes, I need a ride. I don't know where my rental car is, I think something's wrong, I need a ride. Um, complete strangers. And they say, okay. And they, they had to go north to wherever, they take me about 30 minutes west to my, to my hotel. And so, to, to go back up midnight, I mean, complete strangers whom I'm sure... I'm pretty positive didn't know Jesus from some of the conversation, were willing to take me all the way. Here's the worst part. As I start getting around where the hotel's supposed to be, and I don't see a sign, and like, all right, you know what? We, uh, we're just going to have to let you off and let you go here. Um, we don't see the hotel, and we got to go. It's like 1 a.m. by that time. And I'm like, okay, just let me out. I'll just walk. And so um, I finally just get out, and I start walking around, and they leave. And I'm just sitting there, scared to death, like freaking out. Don't know where my hotel is. I walk around this corner, and then there's my hotel. And I'm like, oh. Praise Jesus. It's like 2 a.m. I'm nervous. My room's gone. I finally go in there. And I, my room's there. I'm scared. But here's the deal. I was nervous. I was scared. I was vulnerable. I had no, vulnerable. I had nowhere else to turn. I had nowhere else to go. And I'm pretty sure that when loving other people, that that's the position we're going to find ourselves in. And that's okay. God is ready for you to start loving other people. And yes, you might get hurt. Yes, you're going to be vulnerable. Yes, you're going to have to go up to people maybe you don't know and it's a scary situation and do things that scare you and ask people that could, could physically harm you or could just um, mentally hurt your feelings or whatever. There's going to be times in your life where this kind of Christ initiative taking, as He is, so also are we. This kind of, as Jesus' love shines out in this world, so are we supposed to be shining out that kind of deep love in other pe- for other people. It's going to be sometimes places where you're going to receive suffering, persecution, hurt. 
you're going to find yourself vulnerable in front of people. And sometimes it might work out and sometimes it might not. But that's the kind of love that God is asking you and telling you to love other people with. When you allow yourself to be absolutely submitted to the will of God, vulnerable before Him, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want. That's whenever you'll start following in this exhortation of abiding Him. That's when you'll start following in this exhortation of living in His love. That's when you'll start following this exhortation of loving God and loving others. And there's good news. Really, really good news. Verse 14. As we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. John is telling us that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's pretty good news. So in our vulnerability, in our, okay, God, I can't do this without you. I'm going to start loving this person in the way that you came and loved us. I'm going to be on mission the way that Jesus was on mission to seek and save sinners, to seek and save the lost. Jesus is the Savior of the world. So the people that you're sacrificing your life for, He's their Savior. That's good news. So however God's leading you this this morning, I just want to say, be willing to submit to that. Be willing to say, however you're leading me this morning to love other people. Maybe you just need to take some time in prayer as we go into worship. Maybe you just need to stay. God, I don't know. Last week we prayed for each other. We, we grouped up and we said, well, how can I love you today? What's the way I can love you? Today I just want you to spend some time alone, you and God, and say, how can I find myself in that kind of love? How can I find myself in And this self-sacrifice, I have nowhere else to turn. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to start loving other people the way that God has loved me in Christ. How can I start doing that? Practically, what can I start doing? Maybe in your school it means you make different friends. Maybe in your school it means you reach out to the outcasts or the most popular. Maybe it means in your work you finally are going to be strong enough to tell people about Christ. Maybe it means in your family where they're just crazy. You're going to shine the light of Christ. Maybe it means as a husband or a father, you're going to finally start praying and reading the word together. Maybe it means as a husband and father, you're going to start leading your children. You're going to, this is new and different, child. I know that, but I, I believe that God wants you to know Christ and I'm going to start leading you in, in family worship times. Maybe it means if you're walking with someone that's not yet your husband or wife and you find yourself being in sin, you're going to say, that's not how I'm supposed to love. I'm going to pull back and I'm going to love you the way Christ wants me to love you. Maybe there's people around the street in your community, uh, that your community group serves. I don't know. I mean, it's, there's people everywhere that you can finally say, I'm going to love you as Christ is in the world. I'm going to love you in that way. And you just need to spend some time in prayer and ask God to not only reveal these things to you, because 3.18's already told us we, just, we, can, we can talk all we want to. But love is not just in word, but in deed. So He would reveal these things to you and that you would do them.
that you would do them and that I would do them. That's what it means to live in His love. And that's what He's calling us towards. Several months ago, we picked the, first, the book of 1 John because we knew that we, as Remedy, needed to start finding ourselves to be far more loving people. Not that we weren't loving, but that we felt God was calling us to a higher sense of love. Uh, a deeper understanding of what it means to be forgiving people towards those who've wronged us and a church that really reaches out into the community and loves their community with reckless abandon almost. In Jesus' name. And we've seen some great fruit we really have. God has been kind to us in His Scriptures and drawing us into and letting us see the places we need to change. And I just want to say, wherever He's asking you to change right now, walk in it. You and I both know that that's what you and I want in our lives and that's what we desire. So let this be the day that you finally say, this is the day that I'm going to start doing it. I'm not going to mess around anymore. I'm not going to wait till I'm after, out of college. I'm not going to wait till I have my first child. I'm not going to wait till I finally get that promotion or I finally get everything together next fall or whatever. Quit making excuses. I need, need to do the same thing. It's not just for you. And we're going to start doing it. We're going to start doing it. We're going to see the kingdom grow in the city of Rock Hill. We're going to see more people meet Jesus. We're going to see our faith start growing. We're going to see our love for other people start growing. And Christ is going to be glorified. So spend some time in prayer. And if you are ready to stand and sing and worship with us, proclaiming to Christ how good He is, that He would be our Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much for the good news of the Gospel. I thank You, God, for the gift of love. The gift of love. That you are love. And that you've given us this gift that we can express with emotion, feelings of favor and affection for other people. What a, what a tremendous gift that we have to be able to love other people. Because you have first loved us. Father, I ask that we would all have our affection stirred for Jesus. And as that happens, it overflows out of our heart to other people. And that as you awaken new affections for the gospel, awaken new affections for Jesus and how he's loved us, that we would start loving other people. Be with my friends now as they pray and think through ways that they can start loving other people. And be with us as we worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.